there's no better course. So, and cross country skiing is meant to be hard. It was a really fun race. And Hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from APU. See, here we have with the hero, Bjorn Daly. That's the great thing about sport. Make it rain. Make, make it rain. You play to win. It is. I mean, that's that's our sport. So toughen up, train harder, and get in that pack and make it rain. Make it rain. Make it, make it rain. First of all. Make it rain. Make it rain. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. And uh, and from that, I, it's sort of up to me to pick the ones that I really like, which can't be super hard. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you have experience with testing two very nice pairs of skis, you know, that they feel exactly the same. Let's go. Ain't no way they can stop me now, daddy, because I'm on my way. I can feel my way. On the back stretch, it is Mellon and Richardson. Advice you shut up. You're welcome. You're welcome. No, I wasn't playing. You're like, you shut up. It's like, if you want to talk to me outside, I'm more than happy to talk to you. you talk about that. Like Michael Tell him again. Like Michael the Twins are going to win the World Series. The Twins have won it. It's a base hit. It's a one nothing. During the race, she heard me. I'm very flattered about that. <laughs> You're skiing very wise. You know, we're going to have to work hard. We're going to we're gonna have to train hard. But, you know, this, this group has got, a, has got an hourly work ethic, you know, so that's not going to be the problem. All right. Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. Broadcast live from the Shovel Lake Public Radio Studios here in Leadville, Colorado. This is the Cedar Skier Podcast, and I'm Ryan Cedarquist, your host. Happy to have you on here. This is attempt number four at the podcast that should have aired weeks ago. But here we are trying it again. We're not really sure why we had so many issues. I think it could be maybe I've been uh, you know trying to stream the Visma Ski Classics. Um, through nefarious means, it's finally catching up to my computer. I don't, I don't know if if that's the issue now that that we have too many viruses here at cedarskier.com headquarters or what. But Ajay is telling me, my producer here, that that could be the case. What happened is basically we had ten minutes of excellent content, the content you come for here and, and expect from us at cedarskier.com. Riveting hot takes. Um, we had 10 minutes and uh, failed to upload anchor.com. What's the deal? Tried it again. 
we actually cut down take two only lasted eight minutes and 55 seconds. So I don't know what we left out or if I was just talking fast or not really sure, but, uh, anchor.com upload fail. So here we are trying again. Well, and before that we had a garage band 50 minute episode that basically, you know, I was interrupted cause I had to go, um, change a diaper for Novi or something. And then we just lost, we lost the rhythm on that one. So I didn't really know where to pick it up. So anyway, here we are. It is January 18th and you have come to the right place. The hottest endurance sports podcast in Lake County. That is what we are. You can't deny that. So big show on tap for you today. We need to digest so many different things. So let's kick it off right away and start with the man, the myth, the legend, Johannes Klabo. Johannes Klabo has established himself now as I think perhaps the most dominant cross country skier that we've ever seen. And I understand that, you know, his time will still tell if he catches Marie Borgen, um, Marie Bjorgen. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm a stickler when it comes to pronouncing Klabo's name. So I guess I better learn everyone else's too. But, uh, basically he, I, I understand that he does not have the same total world cup wins and all of the uh, accomplishments on the resume quite yet, but in terms of just dominance, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it. Klabo has started 98 World Cup races, and he has podiumed on 65 of them. So, you know, over 65% of his starts, he's on the podium. He's also won 47 of those. He is winning nearly half of his World Cup starts. To compare, Bjorgen, um, in her career, started 303 World Cup races, podiumed in 184. Uh, that's actually a pretty close, you know, about 60% right there. I know, quick math. Um, and victories, 114, so 37% roughly, 37.6% uh, of her World Cup she won. So, Klabo again, slightly more dominant. That's all I'm going to say. The facts prove it, right? The science says, and the science hasn't changed yet. Um, get, can we get over that phrase? When anyone says the science has changed, I don't think they understand what science is. <laughs> like what on earth? Scientific method, scientific process, right? It's a process used by humans to acquire knowledge about the earth. And it, it, science doesn't change. It, like the data that we're getting can, can be, uh, you know, develop, I guess, like as we get new data, but science changing, it just, how, how can the leaders of a scientific community use phraseology like that? It's just baffling. Anyway, back to Klabo. What makes him so dominant? I think there are uh, several things we saw, you know, first of all, Klabo is tactitionally the master. Um, he's technically the most sound skier. Um, he has the most beautiful technique. He's also the most beautiful person. He's very, very good looking, right? Uh, but that's, that's all aside. That doesn't really necessarily help his skiing, but Klabo is graceful. He knows when to attack. He knows how to execute his game plan. Uh, he has the whole package physiologically. He's there as well. He's a very explosive athlete who can hammer for 50 K just as well as he can, um, you know, sprint up the final climb of a course. So that is what makes him pretty untouchable, you know? And now for those of you who are sitting there going, wait, what about some of the all-time greats, the eighties, the nineties, Bjorn Dollies, what, how, where do they rank here? How could you say that Klabo is better than them? And, and actually, I mean, we could just look at the numbers again and Klabo, I think just surpassed Bjorn Dolly for, for world cup wins, um, total, right? Let's take a look at that really fast. Men's world cup 
victories, Nordic skiing. Great show prep here on the Cedar Skier podcast. It says here, Bjorn Dolly is the most successful. Oh, yeah, look at <laughs> Wikipedia needs to update itself. The phrase there, uh, Bjorn Dolly, most successful. He's no longer a winner. Klabo has the most World Cup victories. That's incredible. Wow, 47. Dolly had 46. So he technically even is the most accomplished male skier. We're not, we're, we're not taking much of a leap by saying he's the greatest. But here's what I'll say. And, and I wrote about this in my master's thesis you know, lit review, which might be where that thing stays is at the lit review. I'm sorry. No, Oyvind, I will get to it. I promise. I'll try to finish collecting data, publish a study. Um, in my lit review, I mentioned how there's sort of this circular process of development in cross-country skiing, uh, kind of a triumvirate between scientists, sports physiologists, athlete innovation, and um, product innovation. And so basically, as we see grooming, uh, making courses more hard-packed, uh, pole companies and ski companies making stiffer, lighter equipment that's faster. Uh, it it allows for athletes, kind of gives them an avenue, a door to innovate in techniques, innovate in strategy, um, and, and and by doing so, take skiing to a new level. And then when they make those innovations, physiologists and coaches identify new demands for the sport. So, um, okay, if we're going to, if we're becoming a sprint heavy sport at the end, we need to make, um, pull power production, a bigger deal, right? Explosive power is going to be a bigger deal as courses become steeper and harder and faster. Um, lower body explosiveness is huge and technique and balance. And, and basically what you see is this revolution, a constant revolution being dictated by those three elements. Um, as equipment gets better, as athletes make changes, physiologists have to respond by adjusting what the current demands are for the sport. And what I see with Johannes Klabo skiing right now is we have an athlete who is sitting here and has, uh, you know, whether by providence or his own good strategy, determined all of the elements necessary to be successful on the World Cup. And he's just, he has the complete package. You know, and so he meets all the physiological demands for success. He meets all the strategic demands for success. Technically, he has all the demands for success, and 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 therefore can't really be beaten, or so it seems. And we're so we're sitting here, and and how do you how do you take down Klabo? Um, and I, I'll say this now. So the Russians, you should be listening, right? If you want to know, here's the secret. The Cedars gear is about to give you the secret about how to take down Klabo. Um, we'll see if take four on this, by the way, goes better. Then takes one, two, and three. I think take three was the best when I brought up this point. Here, here's what I'll say. When, when I watch these sprint races, it appears to me that everyone in the race, except for Klabo, is sort of racing hard. You know, they're, they're not like flailing about, but they're not racing with much intention. Uh, they appear to be kind of letting the race come to them, um, almost reacting or if they are going on the aggressive approach, you know, it's not a calculated one. Klabo, on the other hand, has identified the line that he he needs to take to win. He's identified the point in the course that he needs to execute a particular strategy in order to win. And then he just goes out and does that in every round. So you what you see is you see it's why it looks so easy for him too. It, it's appearing that he just kind of has identified like, okay, this is how to do this course the fastest, you know, and then he qualifies with the top time or whatever. But then he kind of goes, all right, given the field, given my abilities, um, given just the nature of drafting and the lines that will be taken here, what do I need to do to win? 
And maybe it's a move on a final hill or the second to final hill or a downhill being in the right spot coming around a turn. He just identifies this is the place I need to be in at this point of the race. Now get there. And then he executes his plan. So, and that's, it, it might seem oversimplified, but it really is true that I think that's kind of what appears to be going through his mind is he's sort of made that, that clear race strategy. This will work every single time. And so to take him down, I think you can't really beat him at his own game. Now, Tarentev from Russia sort of may have proved me wrong in the sense that he has the Klabo stomp down as good or better than Klabo does. Fine. But he also demonstrated in the later World Cups that you can't just have one element of sprint skiing be better than Klabo and expect to beat Klabo. Like, Klabo has it all together. He knows strategy. He knows lines. He knows all those things. And Trentiv does not. He's just clearly a noob out there, which is why that couple sprints, he you know didn't even make it to the semifinals or whatever. Uh, so great talent. And I hope that he does develop as a skier because it would be really fun to see someone who can match Klabo physically. Because up to this point, we haven't had really anyone who could match him physically either. So it was really lopsided. But uh, anyway, I, I think... Um, where was I going with that? The Clavo. How do you stop him? Well, oh, yes. So here's what you got to do, Russia. Listen close. I think it is futile to try and come up with your own plan, quite frankly, to take down Clavo, unless maybe you're Trentive, because physically you could maybe do it. Um, so don't try to identify this is my plan and I think it'll work. Okay. Clavo's probably going to have the fastest skis. He's probably going to know what he's doing out there. So what you should do is watch him in the qualifying round, identify how he takes the course, identify the lines he wants to take. Okay, note that. Then after the first heat, see if you can observe what his clear kind of three-step process of execution that he has identified required to win is. And you've identified the points of the course where you know he's going to try and be positioned in a certain spot. And, and what you do then is you just assign everyone to foil that in the semis and finals. I mean, you go on the all-out defense mode. It, like It's like a prevent defense for skiing, but it's just total frustration. I, it, I shouldn't say prevent defense. It's more like a box and one in basketball. You know, it's like, okay, here's the best player on the team. We are going to put one guy on him, and then we're going to zone his side of the floor constantly. So basically, he's being guarded by three different people the whole game. And that's what you do to Calabo. You know, and you just try so hard to disrupt what he's trying to do that he he is just frustrated beyond belief. And I think that is kind of the only way that you could get to him. He's shown that if you if one athlete is trying to do that, he just figures out a way to get around. But I think if enough people really teamed up against him, you know, it'd be it, he wouldn't stand a chance. Now you might let some other Norwegian win or whatever, but if you got three Russians in the final or or you know a couple of Italians, like I don't know, I I think. Unless you're racing for fourth or fifth place, like this might be the way for some teams to try and take them down. Now, um, speak. This is one topic I wanted to bring up about Clabo and sort of the World Cup in general. One thing I I was surprised by early on here in the World Cup season is the fact that the Norwegians have come out of the gates really steaming, ready, rock and roll, and ready to go. Okay, I sort of thought that, especially after last year the success of the Norwegians at the world championships. And it sort of seemed like maybe that was partially a product of the pandemic and how they sat out some of those, um, you know, tour to ski, sorry, some of those early season world cups and then really crushed the championships. They sort of felt like, Oh, okay. I bet, I bet we'll see them come out conservative, not really showing much 
at some of these early world cups and then they'll, you know, come and crush it at the Olympics. And I, and I sort of thought Bolshanov would probably be a big character at the beginning and the Russians would be consistent and we'd have that kind of whole same debate that we had last year where, well, okay, you know, this is a, a not, not as strong Norwegian field, the world cups, but we, we haven't seen that. It's in fact, it's been kind of the opposite. The Russians have been a little bit inconsistent and um, the Norwegians, well, Klabo at least has been very dominant. Um, and I don't think he should, he should have to worry about that for one. It does not appear that he is straining himself to win these races. He, he looks honestly like he's going like 85% most of the time and then calculated, um, you know, going like, like at the 15 K classic at, um, Oh, wherever that was right before the second to last tour to ski stage where he really just blew the doors off of Niskanen and Niskanen specialty. That to me seemed like he was very focused you know, and sending a message to the rest of the ski world that like, look, I can take anyone at any competition. I thought that was pretty cool that, you know, he's dialed himself in at certain ones and, and maybe kind of backed off in, in other ones and still won everything. Uh, it's a pretty scary thought going ahead to the Olympics. I think if you're on the men's side, you got to think, oh my gosh, like what on earth are we going to do? So that's one thing on the women's side, you know, um, Jess Diggins, uh, had a rough tour to ski, obviously, and that was talked about at length in the Faster Skier podcast, and we won't dive into that. But what I will say is I'm excited and pleased with what Diggins said about her strategy as far as early World Cup racing. It'd be cool if we had the audio for it, but I'll paraphrase. Basically, you know, she gets herself ready for those late season races by racing. And so not just from a physiological perspective, but a mental one. She pushes herself extremely hard in all those races, which is awesome. That's how it should be. And in doing so makes herself mentally tough, knowing she can, you know, hone, she hones that ability to go to the well, uh, race after race after race. And she also is pushing her body such that she is getting fitter. Uh, I think not every athlete needs to kind of consider this like, like, well, I'll say this. I, I think that if you can do that, that is what you should do. It's the most purest form of competition. You know, you should always be showing up at a competition, um, with the intent of giving it your absolute best. And Diggins does that. And then in doing that, it's great if you are building fitness and both mentally and physically along the way. Now, unfortunately, it does seem like not every athlete can do that. In fact, I would say it's kind of rare if you're an athlete and you can do that. It seems like most athletes who um, are competitors like that and and kind of go to the well every single race, they need to be sort of tempered, tailored back, like, okay, save some of these emotional performances for the ones that really count. Um, and, and maybe Diggins is that as well and doesn't totally realize it. I don't know. You know, she's a, a experienced veteran. She hasn't really had too many unbelievable performances at like a world championship or the Olympics other than the, the sprint gold. But I, I think like she hasn't always been at her best at some of those huge events, but I'm not sure if I would, I would attach that to her strategy of competition necessarily. You know, I think sometimes it, it has had to do more with um, bad luck when it comes to um, technician work on the skis. So um, now may, maybe she was a little burned out last year at the world champs. You know, she had such a long grinding season and really went for that overall globe title, which I think was the right call. Um, but, she, and she still was fourth, I think in one of the, was it the skiathlon or I can't remember. I mean, she just missed the podium in a couple of, a couple of races. So um, anyway, I, I thought, it's pretty sweet that her strategy isn't, yeah, you know, I got to 
be all complicated and dial it back and organize my schedule so that, you know, it's I'm peaked perfectly on the the three hour window at the Olympics. Like, no, just bullcrap. Like, right. You know, get out there, race hard. As we heard at the beginning of the show, Devin Kershaw, train hard, get in that pack and make it rain. And and Diggins is going to do that. So I commend her for that. And I think the overall strategy is sweet. Speaking of the tour to ski, though, and on the women's side, especially, how about those performances on the final hill climb from Sophia Lockley and Novi McCabe? Okay. Now, I know I named my daughter Novi, and so you might be thinking, wow, what a homer. He's just going to talk about Novi McCabe this whole time. And that, well, that's partially true. Um, I actually am more excited about the fact that we still have a hill climb in Nordic ski, right? I think there, there's one element of the sport. The, the 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 long frustration for me and people close to me know this but and i'm not i shouldn't say really frustrated it's just i think the runner side of me coming out the fairness side because i think um those long grinding uphills are sort of the one element of skiing that takes away a lot of the technician side like ski speed is important on an uphill but it's at least diminished to some degree uh, and it really just exposes your aerobic fitness um and toughness and I think the old style Nordic skiing in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even before, um, the sport itself lent to more of an aerobic nature um, holistically. Most of the races were like that. We had a lot of, you know, the interval start, 50K, Holman Colon, a good example. But like if you were a mentally tough skier with incredible fitness aerobically, you would win a fair amount of races. And that's why you see Bjorn Dolly has a lot of those um, wins in the distance events, right? Well, as the sport has changed, become more made for TV, we got sprint courses, we have high you know, high speed descents, there's just a lot more sprints on the calendar, mass starts in the distance stuff. There's just not a lot of opportunity for the old school specialist to shine. And we still have this hill climb, and it does sort of seem like that's like the one race left on the calendar that you can sort of point to and go, all right, we're going to find out who is... Um, aerobically the strongest skier like pound for pound and we're going to find out who kind of has guts and toughness mentally and i get that it's not really like a oh there's novi right there she must have heard we were talking about Novi mccabe i get that it's not really true skiing i'm fine saying that but i do wish that skiing exposed some more of those elements and and held to some of that tradition a little bit more um actually devin brought this up on one of the podcasts recently. And I, I, I had to kind of say, amen, amen. As I was listening to it. And he was saying like, why isn't, you know, why aren't we doing as a sport holding to some of our traditions and having like a 50 K interval start at home and colon, right? Like they should have never changed that up. That that's like the Boston marathon of the world cup uh, schedule. Totally agree. And, and it's not even just a tradition sake. It's like by changing that you are again, changing the demands for the sport. So it's not, it's not even as simple as like in track and field, if they were to go, okay, instead of a 10 K, we're going to run a seven K or an eight K, right? Like that's not changing the demands all that much. You're still running on track, still a distance race. You're going to rely heavily on the aerobic um, energy system. But in skiing, it's like, if you go Holman colon is a 50 K interval start one lap versus Holman colon is eight laps <laughs> um, or 10 laps on a five K loop. And it's a mass start. Like, it changes everything. Now, all of a sudden the sprinter, you know, slow controlled sprint finish, it's going to make a difference. Um, you just change the demands for how to win the race completely. So that is frustrating. And I was talking to a parent of a younger athlete recently, and they were kind of bemoaning the fact this, this child was saying, 
oh, you know, I'm just not any good at sprinting, you know, and, and I don't really like sprints. And the parent was kind of like, well, you can't tell yourself that because then, of course, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy and all that. But but I kind of had to, you know, side with the kid a little bit, too. It's like, yeah, it's annoying. Like every every weekend we've got – it seems like there's three sprints for every one distance race on every calendar now. And that distance race is a mass start, which is basically a bona fide 45-minute warm-up with a sprint most of the time. You know, so – um, all this is to circle back and say, Lockley McCabe, seeing them have some success on this event, it does make you wonder like, wow, you know, if this was the 90s, would they be our best skiers kind of a thing? You know, and, and they're just the type of athlete where given today's the nature of skiing, they're not really. I, I sort of think McCabe is more of an all around skier. I think she will see some success. I think she she might be able to take the reins from Jesse eventually and kind of be someone who could be competitive in a, a wide range of events. And I, I, I think Lockley is, is a little bit more of that specialty where um, she does extremely well on tough courses that have a lot of elevation gain, but she's just not the same power skier that is going to be successful in the current World Cup, which is sad. I think, she, you know, it's like she might have been the all-time greatest if she was alive in 1978, you know, not, not all-time greatest, but you know what I mean? Like it just would have been totally different. So kind of an interesting thing um, uh, to think about. Um, we've been talking a little bit about the women's team, and this is something that came to, into my brain when I was listening to a Nordic nation podcast, Rachel Perkins, faster skier was talking to Gus Schumacher, Ben Ogden, and, oh, was it JC Schoonmaker? I think it was those three guys. Uh, pretty interesting episode. I, I really enjoy it. And she does good work at the Nordic nations where it's like you, you get inside scoops on, um, on that, that aspect of the sport, um, the community aspect of the sport. Maybe it's a, a coach or, you know, she, she's just done a lot of good investigative journalism, I think in, in that program. Uh, one thing that is sort of stuck out a theme was I was listening to it. She asked a question, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but something along the lines of, um, you know, the women's side, the women's team has this really close knit culture, cohesive teamwork, and they've sort of built their way up through the last decade or so culminating in the Keegan and Jesse gold medal in 2018. And, uh, basically the guy's side, it's been a little bit more, some lone wolf characters in there and just sort of struggled to have that same, uh, culture of community and, um, healthy competition that, that allows them to push each other and rise to the top. And, um, and so they, they respond to that question and, and, you know, here's these young 20 something year olds. And I think, you know, I'm just picturing what, what guys teams have been like in the past for me too, and how they contrast to girls teams. And I guess I'm coming from a place of I've coached, um, both boys and girls teams before. So you sort of see the different dynamics, I've been on a team that's just guys, you know, like basketball, locker room guys, total, total, total guy, guy. And then cross country where it's guys and girls mixed, um, cross country running, obviously, uh, and then skiing too. And you, you just see the difference between how, like, what does a, what does a healthy guys program look like versus a healthy girls program? And guys, because guys are different than girls. I know I probably should not say, you know, this is why we're the Ben Shapiro show of Nordic skiing, right? Guys are different than girls. This is earth shattering. You can't really say that anymore in today's world. Um, but they are different. And so what 
what works for one isn't isn't going to always look the same. And that's that's what I think is I want to make this point here is do we really know um, the status of the health side for the girls team and the boys team? Because sure, on the outside as journalists, we can kind of look and go, well, look, Jesse and Keegan won the gold medal, and we can kind of identify this 40 or 50 year progress that the women's team has taken from the days of Martha Rockwell all the way to Jesse Diggins, right? And look at, you can see how one has stood on the shoulders of the other to lift up each other and blah, blah, blah. It's all good and fun. I'm glad that we won a gold medal. So don't, please, I don't want it to seem like I'm like demeaning anything on that, but we don't really know all the inside drama any sort of cat fighting that you saw or didn't see um, people whose feelings were hurt, people who were left on the outside, who weren't quite in the click of the U S ski team who, you know, maybe were very talented or could have been in the position of a Keegan or Jesse or others who came before them, but didn't really get those opportunities. Um, we, we don't know any of that. And, and quite frankly, unless you are that athlete who maybe was sort of ripped off, you, we won't really ever know. But I think there are certainly, and every team is going to have athletes who don't quite fit in that mold of a team. And, um, and, and so they might have a totally different perspective, you know, when people are like, oh, look, it's just a great culture on the women's ski team. They might disagree with that uh, completely. And I haven't been analyzing the sport long enough to really decide, you know, well, is it an accurate statement to say that the guys team just hasn't had a healthy culture? From the limited stuff I've read and heard, I think, you know, Rachel's statement there is, or, or kind of question and leading into it was probably pretty accurate, you know, that we've had, we haven't had the same sort of support as the girls. And I'm kind of okay saying that, but when you heard the, when I, when I listened to the response of the boys, it did almost seem to, to seem to me to feel like, okay, this is actually the guys kind of going, oh, they just don't really understand how guys are because here you got a bunch of 21 year olds and, and their group is totally cohesive and maybe they felt like no man nothing's wrong like are we gonna look oh, i don't remember who it was someone said the, po- the the question like or the response i think it was gus was sort of like we get along really well we just aren't as good at instagram and i thought that was really telling like it was kind of funny but it's also like ah yeah good point because the girls girls just in general are are doing more of that sort of posting on social media and letting everyone know kind of what's going on so we get this inside look like oh okay that's they look like they're really having a lot of fun now they look like their life is perfect but that picture in that post does not tell the whole story ever you know and so that level of deception guys just in general aren't aren't as good at communicating and so we're not going to be posting stuff like that and giving you as accurate of a of an inside scoop on stuff so i think it's very possible that that the the culture of healthy competition within the guys team could be great right now and they could be pushing each other to be the best that they can be and you never know maybe on the girls side there's there's tons of um non-beneficial drama for all we know you know and it could be great too i'm not i'm not saying it's not uh but i think it's something to think about i think as journalists we tend to kind of hop on and i'm guilty of this too obviously but like oh that seems like a great story i'm gonna go with it and i sort of now wonder looking back like have we done that with our with our women's team where we sort of like it just seems so good to be true so we're just going to kind of write the narrative how it is and kind of forget about the fact that there have been athletes along the way who have not gotten to stay on the train the whole time and and i i feel for them because you know if you are a personality where you are a little more independent you're a little more of you're a little more lone wolf by nature. You might not have fit in with that women's team, and it might not really have been a fault of your own, you know, or a fault of even the coaching staff or the US ski team in general. But 
but just the fact that, you know, you have a different type of personality. And I I've seen that, I think in some of the teams I've coached where actually one of them, it was a very good guys program. You know, we had seven guys runners and they were all very close in ability. We had one that was, that was better than everyone. And it just good enough that he was kind of the clear leader, the number one runner on the team. But if he had a bad race, he could, he could be beaten by our number two guy. But my point was, uh, watching them, they always pushed each other. They had just an incredible ability to all be as good as they were and also all recognize their role on the team and sort of be not satisfied with it, but it was a sufficient um, place, I guess. You know, they they saw their place in the universe. They kept trying to be better than each other, which is what you want. Um, but, but it didn't, it wasn't breaking down the team. And I think that's something that is, is interesting. A lot of coaches will say like, you know, recognize your place on the team. And then what happens is athletes kind of get stale and they're not like trying to beat the person next to them. It's like, oh, I just have to recognize that this person's, you know, our fourth guy and I'm the fifth guy. So I'm never going to try and be better. It's like, no, when, when I was coaching this team, it's like every person wanted to beat the guy next to them, but they were going to hug each other before and after the race too. I think that's what you want is you need to have this culture of like, uh, we're, we're going at after each other in the sense that we're trying to push each other to be the best that we can be for our, for our team's glory. Um, but we, we also are trying to get better. Uh, Adam state is kind of a, a team I think about that, that balances this pretty well, where you have somehow, you know, incredible depth. The team comes first. There's some team tactics at play, but there's also this individual development that is right alongside of it. Um, and, and, and I think that's a dynamic that we, we just don't often recognize. It seems like as journalists, we want it one way or the other, like, oh, there's a bunch of people and they're just out to get each other cutthroat. That's bad. Or the other side where it's like, they're all just too soft, right? Team comes first. So no one's trying to hurt anyone's feelings or stepping on anyone's toes. So I, I don't know. So I, and again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing like anyone in this. I'm actually just, my thought was, huh, I wonder if we actually don't, you know, what, what is it that we don't see in this picture? That that's more my point is to, to step back and go, are we being accurate in our assessment of this? Because we're not on that team. We're not really inside the bubble and, and seeing it all. And are they really going to tell us that much? Like, um, hard to know, you know? So, and what's the state now? Like, uh, yeah, I, yes, Jesse's still there. She's kind of the the only old guard member still there. So, is she still keeping whatever great culture was there? Supposedly, is that still alive? Is it not? How is it different? Um, it'd be interesting to sort of, I don't know, get the truth, I guess, about how it feels right now to be on that team, or to be just barely left off that team. Uh, that was something that that I, that I was thinking about, you know. And on the guys' side, you know, we haven't had all the great performances I think that people want to see happen, but hopefully they're coming um, from Gus. I, I joked at the beginning of the year, I was like, this is his Darius Miles year. Darius Miles, you know, third year LA Clippers way back in the 2001 season. It's like, this is where you break out. You're either break out and you develop as a bona fide superstar or you have, you establish yourself as a bust. And I don't think Gus Schumacher is a bust. I don't. Uh, and I don't think he has established himself as a bona fide superstar. And I think he would agree with that. And so, you know, progression is different in skiing than it is in the NBA. So we'll say that right off the bat, but hopefully, you know, he makes those top 10 appearances a little more regular and, and we'll see what happens on the guy's side. I think the guy's team to me feels a little more like 
the more um more fun team to be on to be honest like it seems like those those boys are like more uh more have the right mindset of we're close we're gelling but we're all striving for that same thing and we're gonna try and you know take on the wild west together a little bit um that's that's not to demean the, the girls side. i think the girls have more talent right now in terms of like could they make waves on the world cup? Like there's some incredible skiers and they're obviously having more success. So, uh, from just a points standpoint, but I think the girls, the, the women's world cup is different than the men's world cup too. And Sadie Bjornsson alluded to that in a podcast, I think a year ago. Uh, so anyway, there's that. Well, one final segment we want to get to, um, I, I don't know, Ajay, I feel like take four here. It's not as electric. The, the energy just isn't the same as it was the first five times we tried to do this podcast. So uh, I think we just got to end it and, you know, start over fresh next week. You see your Skier podcast. Uh, one last thing, though, I did want to bring up a uh, column that I'm trying to write here. Um, and it is about the Olympic qualifying process, kind of comparing winter uh, Olympics to summer Olympics. Okay. And we're going to have those Olympic teams named soon. And then there's going to be all this kerfuffle. I would expect as, as there probably should be. Um, and this is where, again, like we don't see the inside track and the politics behind it and all that. Um, but, but I think it's sure, surely going to be there. And, and USATF kind of eliminate, eliminates this by the way they do it. Okay. So read this column here that I've got. It's sort of a draft column. It hasn't been published anywhere. Um, speaking of way, by the way, the Olympics, the real story is going to be what athlete gets left home because of COVID. Or what athlete gets quarantined and spends 14 days in a Chinese hotel? Like, I don't know if you, how much you, I don't think you could pay me a sum of money to like compete at the Olympics this year. Well, okay. Well, competing at the Olympics would be lifetime dream. So I'd take it no matter what, even if it's in China, but it would be, be tough. I would definitely um, be scared of competing in China. No doubt. All right. So. Here we go. According to Michael Scott, when a solution to conflict benefits competing parties and also the mediator who resolved it, the phenomenon is a win-win-win. The fictionally foolish boss might be onto something in regards to the Olympic qualifying process. You sound like you understand the process, which is good since most people don't. Ski Club Vale's Olympic mogul skier Tess Johnson told me in our interview last week, Eagle Olympian Megan Tierney doesn't even try to figure out the math. You know, everybody keeps asking me that, like how it's going and what are their criteria. I try to not pay attention to that. I just try to do the best I can and go from there. The snowboard cross racer said, offering little help to nervous journalists searching for assurance as to whether he had dotted his I's and crossed his T's and doing the arithmetic on his own. That's me trying to figure out the Olympic criteria. In looking at international results, fan engagement, and participatory growth, it's trying to appear as though the system of objective and discretionary criteria used to select our winter Olympic teams is actually a disservice to the athletes, supporters, and governing bodies of the sports themselves. Could we have a lose, lose, lose on our hands? So that is the thesis statement right there. Basically, the idea that if we look at the winter Olympic uh, qualifying for the winter Olympics versus qualifying for the summer games, we are doing a disservice to as far as international results, worse in the winter games, fan engagement in the, the qualifying process and the winter Olympics worse, uh, participatory growth. What's the pipeline health worse because of the way we have designed making the team, making, um, making the, the U S ski team in the fall and, and also making the Olympics. It's just kind of hurting everything. So lose, lose, lose. Now, 
I'll, I'll continue here. Broadly speaking, the U.S. ski team uses variations of objective and discretionary procedures to choose the athletes it believes to have the best chances of meddling at the games. I credit the recent emphasis on the objective end of the continuum, but since that element is earned through World Cup results, by definition, it shuts the door on the 97% of athletes who didn't make the initial team USA nominations in the fall. So here we have Zach Ketterson, who was not nominated uh, into those World Cup period one starts. Um, he goes, and his only avenue to get a World Cup start is to dominate the Super Tour. So he dominates the Super Tour, goes to the World Cup, he um, does everything he can, the tour to ski, right? He's like the only male finisher for the Americans. Um, and, and then these next two world cups get canceled because of COVID. Like he literally couldn't have done anything more to try to qualify for the Olympic teams. He's done everything he could. And really it's probably not going to be enough. You know, like, I don't think, I don't think he will be ending up on our team. So you kind of look at the system. It's like, all right, if, if we've designed it in such a way that basically, if you are not named, if you are named to the the fall, the Olympic team in the fall, like, or the, I'm sorry, the U.S. ski team in the fall before the season starts, you have a amazing advantage to making it to the Olympics. So, so if you want to make the Olympics, you really got to plan out like two years in advance. Like, you have to dominate Super Tours so that you earn that World Cup start. Now, and I address this because I know people are gonna be like, well, if they're not in those you know, world cup period one starts to begin with, like they probably have no business being on our Olympic team. Okay. Well, let's, let's identify this before you start to argue that athletes not headed to international competition in period one, aren't doing so because they lack the ability to contribute in the first place. Okay. Contrast this with USA track and fields approach in providing objective qualifying standards. Everyone, even you, if you'd actually get going on that new year's resolution and start training for the local five kilometer costume jaunt, could theoretically earn their spot at the quadrennial Olympic trials. The top three athletes from that event make the team plain and simple. Sure, by eschewing a method where an entire body of results is ignored in favor of a gotta-show-up-on-the-right-day approach, every iteration of the Tracktown USA running fiesta includes a surefire favorite for international supremacy packing his bags on account of one bad race, i.e. 2019 world champion Donovan Brazier. But it also usually has a miracle story or two. What are the consequences of each system? Let's take a look. So <clears throat> I hear the potential rebuttals, people suggesting that. So what you're telling me is in skiing, we should have everyone show up uh, at one event and top three go to the games. And I'm saying, yeah, I think you should. Well, what about the whole body of work? Like what if Jess Diggins gets fourth, breaks a pole, whatever? Too bad. Sorry. Like, <laughs> you know, because what my argument is, is the body of work from the collective pipeline is going to improve dramatically when you open up the door for everyone to compete in this way, in a fair way. <clears throat> and that's what we see in USATF. We left Donovan Brazier behind. He was the 2019 world champion. He was the number one ranked 800 meter runner in the world for the last two years. He had a bad day at the US trials, not going to the Olympics. Sorry, bud. Figure it out. <clears throat> so why does this work? Why And why does it not work to go the other way? Uh, we're going to get to that. First, let's look at the actual results of this. In terms of international results, USATF has accumulated 828 Olympic medals, 616 more than the second place nation, Great Britain. Uh, meanwhile, the Winter Olympics medal count goes something like this. Norway, 368, USA, 305. Dissecting it by sport makes things worse. Austria owns alpine skiing, 121 medals to R47. Cross-country skiing, Norway has 121 medals. We have two. I'll play devil's advocate with myself too, because unlike most columnists, I'm okay admitting when I'm wrong. 
all right, can at least consider the possibility of not being correct. The U.S. has been dominant in the new hip with it and wow winter sports. We've racked up 31 medals in snowboarding, 18 more than the next country. Free skiing as a North American not at the top with both Canada and the U.S. at 25 medals. I would argue, however, our success in these two sports, along with halfpipe, slope style, and other free ski events, simply show how traditionally snow sport rich nations in Scandinavia or Russia simply haven't focused their resources in the novel twisting and flipping events because they already possess established roots in the foundational winter competitions like biathlon, Nordic, and alpine skiing. So, why is USATF's approach so successful when they make world beater Galen Rupp? Line up with Noah Drotti, the boulder-based hippie embodying every Division Three distance runner dreamer to earn their stripes, literally. Well, <clears throat> here we go. First off, coffee break. Hmm. First off, the elevated stakes at the trials, where careers are either extended or ended, equips athletes to succeed in the pressure of global competitions. Most runners know that if they can secure top three in Eugene, they're all but assured a medal at the Olympics. Sure, the American men have stumbled at consecutive four-by-ones. On the flip side, if you doubt my reassessment of American track dominance, stream the 2020 Olympic women's four-by-four meter relay. Watch in amazement as the most star-studded lineup of world record holders, Sydney McLaughlin and Dalila Muhammad, American record holders, McLaughlin, Muhammad, and Nothing Mo, and an all-time Olympic medal record holder, Allison Felix, completely obliterate a helpless field. The system benefits the athletes. So we see this in, in Norway and skiing too, by the way, when they have a tryout, you know, the day before the four by five kilometer relay and they have the women like, you know, duking it out to the, uh, you know, just a bloodbath all out effort the day before the race or two days before the race, they know that if they make that team, they are going to win a gold. So it's kind of the same thing in USADF where like, if you make it, you're probably going to get a medal. And, um, part of that's like, the actual pressure at the Olympic trials is so much greater than at the Olympics. They're equipped to handle that. We don't really have that winter sports. None of our athletes are, are ever going through a scenario where the stakes are so high that they have to be ready for that. So if you did have a one week trial event, like us championships, that's the Olympic trials. Like that would absolutely be that. And is this going to be like a, well, if we did that one year, all of a sudden our Olympic results improve. Absolutely not. This is, this is like a systems thing. So it's going to take, several cycles to really um come to fruition because again my other two points of benefiting it is the oh, the pipeline's health is benefited there's so many more athletes who are who are in usatf or in track and field than in skiing and part of that is the access like it's so confusing and prohibitive for people to climb the ranks in skiing compared to other sports that um, it just sort of shuts it off. It makes it exclusive just by its nature. So that, that, no, it's not like a one turn fits all, but, but let's take a look here. Cause some nations that are in running have tried to take the objective discretionary balance approach. And how does that work for them? Okay. Interestingly, I continue even a stereotype distance dominant nation like Kenya, which has a talent pool, literally a hundred times deeper than ours in events longer than the mile has chosen to go the objective discretionary route and cringe watched as performances suffer. The malign system left the greatest runner in history, Iliad Kipchoge, off of the Olympic team altogether in 2012. So just let that sink in, okay? Kipchoge was a world champion before 2012, I think in 2008. Um, he, was a, he was also an Olympic medalist, I think silver medalist at the 08 games. Um, and he just left off the 2012 team. <laughs> uh, compared to the US, whose national marathon record is four minutes slower than Kenya's. Kenya has amassed eight men's marathon medals to the U.S.'s 11. We have more marathon medals than Kenya. In the 5,000 and 10,000 meter races, both countries have one gold medal apiece. 
That's nuts. We each have one gold in the 5K and one gold in the 10K. Kenya and America. Two two gold medals in both those events. The signature distance running track and field events. So obviously it doesn't really work for Kenya. They've been frustrated by their system. For fans who have journeyed to Oregon, an international track mecca of sorts, and immerse themselves in the intelligent track community with its run-savvy junkies leaning over the hallowed Hayward field bleachers to shake hands with their idols during victory laps, the atmosphere is paralleled by no other event, including the Olympics. And that's true. It's the greatest track and field event in the world. It's better than the Olympics. It, it, it just is. If you haven't, if you have been there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and if you've watched the Olympics, and especially this last one, you know, in front of no fans or whatever. Uh, it, it doesn't even come close. It's the most exciting event. It's because careers are on the line. Um, the stakes are high. It's true competition at its finest. Everyone has to show up and make it happen. They got to make it rain. Uh, and I continue. There is something to be said about opening up the opportunity to make a U.S. team to everyone. It is American in the truest sense, and fans know it. Opening the floodgates to dreamers isn't just some fantastical proposition for the duckies and bunnies in the audience, though. And what I mean by that is it's not just like, Okay, let's open up for fairness so that some dreamer skier can make his Olympics. That's I understand that's probably not going to happen. Okay, but it's this next line: the foundation of fairness versus the culture of clicks, which we see in the snow sport governing bodies, is what draws crowds. This brings me to my second and third reasons for its success: it promotes pipeline health. More athletes are encouraged to participate at every level of track and field, and when your base is large, the cream at the top is actually good. So that's the main thing is when you open it up and design in a system where like, hey, you hit the qualifying standards, you're in versus, hey, you hit the qualifying standards, you can make a super tour team and then you can make a World Cup period two start. And then if you do really well at that, then maybe we'll consider you like it's just there's no way. Right. Like literally you could have an American who is better than Clabo sitting in the American ranks, but just hasn't raced any races. And, and he'd have no way of of entering himself in the mold other than walking through the two year process. Okay. At this moment, it's at this moment that I can picture Michael Scott barreling into the conversation and offering his two cents. He'd probably suggest a comically unrealistic solution for winter sports to garner more participants, engage more fans, and increase the international success of the red, white, and blue athletes. Unlike Scott, I won't claim to have the answer. I am, after all, a sports writer, which means my ability to contribute to the cause taps out at complaining about the problems and does not extend to fixing said problems. I do understand that most winter sports, by their nature, can't simply propose a strict qualification time a la track, which is the root of the problem. Regardless, what we currently have turns away would-be fans, would-be dreamers, and possibly, ultimately, hurts the athletes and teams they are meant to be serving. Hopefully, governing bodies, coaches, and leaders work towards that elusive win-win solution. Until then, I'll keep studying the criteria until my brain aches and then binge-watch the office. So I don't claim to have a solution, although I will offer this up. I think I think it would be interesting to have an Olympic trials for skiing. I think if you had the U.S. championships in January be the Olympic trials and said the top three in these events earn automatic bids, um, it'd be awesome. And you could still walk into these events and go, all right, U.S., we got eight women's spots, five men's slots. If you get a top three in any of the events, we're going to take you. And then if, if you have, let's say, you know, that, that gives you 12 male athletes, right? Every single slot there, a top three is a different person in every single race, which is probably pretty unlikely, but let's just say it is. Then you have to create some sort of discretionary measures of like, you know, okay, we, we need tiebreakers in place. Like, how are we going to determine who gets left behind? This person has a top three, but 
you know, so does this person. And we can only have five people go to the games. Then I think that would be the one place where you could, if you're going to combine them. But, but I think you need to have um, everyone show up and, and prove their spot. And, and it would be the greatest fan experience for sure in the ski community. It would make it simplified for, for fans, for coverage, which is going to grow the excitement in the sport for sure, because it would be a very exciting event, whoever is hosting it. Um, the one thing I think is would be difficult is, okay, what is the standard for racing at that qualifying event? I think you could kind of go one of two ways. You could actually, I, I believe, say, like, we're going to legitimately open it up to anyone. And, and if you started with that, <laughs> I don't think you're going to have a ton of random Ryan Cedarquist, like, showing up in their sprinter van. Um, you know, this guy might actually, but, but, um, I don't think you're gonna have a ton of those people like showing up and trying to compete against the world best for, for an opportunity, but you might have a few. And I think in certain events, you can structure the event so that they don't get in the way of the best. I, I think you can still do that. Um, but maybe there is a way you can design, um, some qualification standards for that Olympic criteria and use a super tour for that. I do think that's different than having super tour be the standard for qualifying with a world cup, because, like I said, like you got guys like Zach Ederson who did everything they could, and then they're not even afforded the same chances of those people who are on the World Cup in period one because they could get really good finishes in November that are much easier to acquire than in January. So I just don't think that current system is very fair. What's going to happen about body of results? What happens if Jess Diggins breaks a pole or whatever? Okay. That's a that's kind of one of those like <clears throat> same thing with Donovan Brazier. Every, every year at the Olympic trials, our track team leaves behind a world beater. Every, I should say every year, every world team qualification period, we leave behind someone that going into it, you would have said was an automatic bid. And it's a casualty, but the strength of the program that is um, given to us by the system um, outweighs that. And so you would hope and pray that in the first few times this doesn't happen, that like Gus Schumacher doesn't get left behind in those things. And quite frankly, if they're so much better, they, they shouldn't have any problems with it. Right. They just, just beat everyone. Okay. Um, but I think, I think it's important to put them out there and have them like go and just do it because yeah, having that high pressure situation will also make them a better athlete, but it's, it's more of the overtime period. Like, and that's why Norway isn't as concerned about either. Oh, we left behind this person. Well, that's okay. The next person in line is going to be pretty much as good, you know? And it's, it's the strength of the system that is built out of that. We're kind of trying to go backwards. We're sort of trying to have, you know, the tail wag the dog, so to speak. Um, and I think that's something needs to be shifted. Now, the one problem that I am bringing up and I brought up the article is unlike track, you can't just put a qualification time. And that is really the issue. The sport is different than running. And so it's not like the same thing is going to work, but something needs to change. And, and maybe if nothing else, well, you know, let's have an Olympic trials because we're not Norway right now. Like we want it. We need to drum up some excitement for our sport and in our smaller ski community. And so let's make it simple for the fans and for the followers and for the pipeline. And let's just say, yeah, everyone's going to soldier hall early January because it's our nationals and the top three are going to the Olympics. We want to, we need to draw up and conjure up some of that enthusiasm in our base. And this is the way we're going to do it. Like, let's think about it realistically. How many people do you think, how many athletes are going to be ended up end up at home that could have meddled at the games. Like this isn't a situation like Kenya where, where, you know, a discretionary choice actually leads behind a metal contender. We're not going to have that right away. It's like, I, so I would just assume say it's America. 
competitive. Let's let competition determine things. Everyone gets out there um, and swings for the fences. You know, I don't know. <clears throat> Maybe it's not a right solution. I think. I think it certainly though. You can't. You can't deny that this would, at the very least, increase fan engagement and participatory growth. Like it's not going to turn away people if you if you instituted an Olympic trials system versus what we currently have. So fan engagement and participatory growth are going to absolutely grow. And if you think that those things are important for funding, money, you know, base, pipeline health, I, I don't think I can be in, you know, against it. My 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 main claim of let's look at international results, like what's the actual outcome of this? If you want to debate on that, fine. But I did present, you know, some like pretty compelling stuff of even countries that have way more talent than America in sports, like in track and field that have a discretionary policy to theirs. They just they can't get it right. Like it's at the end of the day, if you use a competitive top three go system, sure, you do run the risk of leaving behind some good athletes whose body of work would would compel you to think they deserve to go that's a reality that's you do have to face that fact but maybe there's something missing on in terms of international results that prevented them from just winning the olympic trials event you know and so that's something to take into account too so it's like both systems are kind of flawed but one of them i think you are going to have the cream rise to the, the to the top a little bit better so um anyway food for thought food for debate if you have some thoughts on it, you'll have to comment on this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Cedar Skier Podcast. Get out and ski. Keep on striving. We'll see you next time.